This is Scott Becker with McGuire Woods, and we've got today a webinar on private equity and mergers and acquisitions. We've got five terrific panelists. We have from McGuire Woods, Melissa Sabat, Holly Buckley, and Bart Walker. Uh, then we have from Miru, a consultant firm that works closely with portfolio companies and private equity funds, Samiksha Gupta and Sean McLaughlin. Looking forward to a robust conversation. Obviously, the whole world of private equity and mergers and acquisitions has temporarily changed for the moment, and we'll talk some about that and the impact on both portfolio companies and also the M&A market. Then we'll talk about pre-coronavirus and what people expect post and so forth today. Let me take a moment and ask each of our panelists to introduce themselves. Uh, Melissa, let me start with you, just uh, 30 seconds each. I'll go through the Guyers people and the Miro people relatively quickly. Um, my name is Melissa Sabad. I'm a partner at McGuire Woods in the healthcare department in the Chicago office. Um, I've been practicing for about 20 years and trained under the great leadership of Scott Becker. Um, and um, I do work primarily um, with ambulatory surgery centers and then obviously lots of work with private equity, which is the topic for today. And Holly? My name is Holly Buckley. I'm also a partner with McGuire Woods here in Chicago. Um, I work in healthcare transactions and also regulatory counseling and spend about 80% of my time working on private equity uh, deals. And Bart Walker? Thanks, Scott. Uh, Bart Walker, also a partner with McGuire Woods in a healthcare group. I spend about you know 80, 90% of my time doing M&A in the healthcare space, uh, most of that is with PE funds, but uh, the rest is on the sell side or the practice side. Thank you. Sean, a moment to introduce yourself, and then between you and Samiksha, what Mero does. Yeah, good afternoon. This is Sean McLaughlin with Mayru. I'm a vice president of Mayru with six plus years in the professional services world. So I've spent a majority of my career focused on performance improvement and growth strategy oriented client delivery services. Uh, helped clients across a myriad of different industries, but I have deep insight expertise into the healthcare uh, industry specifically. So. Thank you. And Samiksha? Hi, this is Samiksha Gupta. I'm a principal with Miru based out of New York City. I'll start with introducing our firm very quickly. We're a turnaround and restructuring advisory firm. We partner with a lot of private equity firms as well as credit funds to work with their portfolio companies, identifying opportunities to unlock value and set them up for long-term success. Um, I personally have 10 plus years of client advisory experience. I was at McKinsey and Company for five years, focused on management consulting, growth strategy work for a variety of industries. And before that, I was an investment banker at JP Morgan. So, so I have experience working with private equity companies from various different capacities. Thank you. Let me ask you sort of the question of the day. So many of the private equity funds, and there's been so much discussion this last couple of years, are working with portfolio companies and then in buyouts, those are fairly leveraged, which year to year the last couple of years has sort of gone okay. Now with this new fragility in the economy and, and new fragility, what are you starting to hear, Samiksha? What's some of the sense of what you're getting? And will there be a lot more need for turnaround work 
which has been a little slower generally, not necessarily with your firm, which is doing great over the last five to 10 years. What's some of your sense of what's happening now? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's a great question, Scott. So what we've seen in the recent years is very elevated valuation levels. And for any kind of private equity fund to meet their hurdle and be able to exit that opportunity at even a higher valuation, the valuations are not getting higher, but the way to unlock that value is by growing EBITDA, growing top line revenue. And the way they can unlock that value is they have to look beyond the traditional measures of value, which used to be traditionally headcount reduction, cost cutting, and that would typically unlock value. But those measures alone are not significant enough to move the needle. So we are starting to see a lot of focus on portfolio company operational improvement beyond just cost cutting. We're, we're seeing people looking at the strategy holistically, focusing on top line commercial growth, whether it's like, you know, brownfield acquisitions, vertical or horizontal M&A. So we're seeing that across the board um, with the focus on being able to EBITDA expansion to, to drive value at exit. And Holly, you work a ton in the PE world, the investment world. Let me ask you, currently, currently with the coronavirus situation going on, are, are deals still happening or what's the, what's going on right at the moment? Are things going slow down? Are they pencils down? Or is the deal universe continuing to work and work forward? So my just personal experience in hearing from a couple of colleagues is um, we haven't seen really anything stop yet, but there is a, a certain amount of apprehension and concern that things are going to stop very soon. Um, I heard that, um, you know, I've heard a story of at least one uh, acquirer, not, not in the private equity space, kind of putting a pause on their deals. I had someone else comment yesterday that um, on, a, on an early stage deal that we'll see if this actually moves forward in light of the uh, current climate. And I think with the uh, economy kind of looking very shaky, there's concern about uh, the ability to access debt. And I think just uh, confidence levels are down, but I think no one's actually said pencils down on one of my deals. I think there's just a fair amount of trepidation. And Bart, your sense pre the coronavirus, what were multiples looking like in private equity funded deals? Any sense? what sort of multiples we're looking for and some of the considerations? Yeah, it sort of depends on the deal size, but for a typical platform uh, acquisition in a relatively hot sector, uh, you're looking at you know, 12, 13 times potentially, uh, times trailing EBITDA. Um, for smaller acquisitions and add-ons, obviously that's going to be a smaller multiple, but for the really popular areas um, that investors are flocking to, the, the valuations have gotten relatively high. In, in, in Melissa, any sense in what you see, if you went back 15 years ago, none of the deals involved private equity funds. What's the convergence today of the private equity funds and their engagements in the deal world today? Yeah, so like you said, 15 years ago, I would say, you know, we did not see very much private equity at all in the healthcare space, and that's grown exponentially. Um, I would say, just in terms of our department's work for clients, 
you know, a very high percentage now involves private equity. Um, and it's, you know, a much smaller percentage where there is no private equity involved. Um, and um, definitely in the space that I work in with ASCs, private equity has been involved, you know, for a while now, but now we're seeing that, you know, it's private equity is getting involved and spilling over to all sorts of other specialties and healthcare um, businesses. Thank you. And just really quickly, Bart, if you've seen multiples of the 1213 range for platforms, talk about the distinction, and I'll ask Holly to get into this too, between a platform and a bolt-on deal and what pricing looks like, and any prognostication of what's going to look like post this coronavirus situation? Sure. I mean, a platform acquisition is typically, for most middle market PE funds that, that we work with on a daily basis, you have to have at least EBITDA of 3 to $5 million. That's sort of the entry level for a platform size deal. Uh, and then that can scale all the way up. I think part of the challenge, especially in healthcare services, has been finding targets of scale that would warrant that kind of evaluation. Uh, just getting all that EBITDA aggregated in one enterprise that you can take a clean shot at has been challenging. Um, anything lower than that tends to be an add-on. Um, platforms, again, you usually have a little bit more sophisticated infrastructure in the form of management, IT, uh, business support, uh, just generally a higher level of professionalism around management that you can really grow off of. Uh, Bolt-ons or add-ons, those are usually, you're buying them for the underlying asset, but with the with a view towards adding it onto your platform and expanding your business that way. So the theory, the classical business model in PE had been you pay 10, 12 times for a platform, then you go out and, and do you know a dozen, half a dozen, two dozen add-ons over the next two to three years at a much lower multiple and you dollar cost average in so overall, your implied multiple on the platform itself is, is much lower than the initial 10 or 12, uh, simplistically. Uh, Thank you. And, and, and how, any sense of, I mean, the good thing on the healthcare side where most of the work is done for your group is practices and so forth don't seem themselves to be a tremendous risk of coronavirus other than that they have to really get in sync with social distancing and avoid in-person appointments for a period of time. But, but by and large, it's not an industry like travel or hospitality that's really going to be hurt by this in the short term. Any sense of multiples from private equity over the next 6, 12 months as we uncover from this coronavirus situation, will that have a negative impact on lending and on deal multiples? Oh, my goodness. That's... Uh... I mean, I wish I could see into the crystal ball and answer that. I mean, my my sense is that um, I think there's going to be maybe a slowdown in some deals getting done in the next uh, three months or so. I, I don't believe it's going to actually impact multiples because I think there's still going to be the same level of, of competition and appetite, and I don't think that the uh, coronavirus is going to, as you kind of alluded to, impact the um, kind of the, the industry as a whole. I think it's just going to be a matter of um, kind of waiting it out to some extent. And then I think as the, as the markets pick back up, I think the deal volume will pick back up and the multiples will stay the same. But I don't know if others have a different view on that, but that's, that's my prediction. 
Hey, Scott, I might add one quick thought on that to what Holly was saying. Um, I, I kind of view it as adding friction to the process. And I, we've already started to see this in some of our deals that are currently in process where people now have very real concerns about in-person visits and site visits and how do you get those done. I think it's definitely going to change the way that people work and the way people think about interaction over the next, call it three to six months. It, 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 and some more uncertainty as well. And uncertainty always has a negative impact on valuations, correct? Or there's just so much competition for deals anyways and so much money sitting out there that might not have a as negative an impact as expected. I think certainly uncertainty. I think you're exactly right. And also hopefully some opportunities in there if you know where to look. But yeah, 100% agree. And, and, and Sean, some of your thoughts on PE funds, working with portfolio companies, what are some of the things that you're seeing today in terms of just the how the portfolio companies are doing, how they'll respond to this, some of the things that you see out there and some you sees out there? Yeah, absolutely, Scott. So I'm assuming that you're talking about in response to the growing concern around coronavirus, correct? I, I think both yes, three, and it generally how you see private equity funds engaging with their portfolio companies. You do a lot of work in the turnaround sector, so maybe challenge companies to start with sometimes, but but also healthy companies. And then, yeah, with this added fragility of, of the coronavirus, you know, what do you see? I mean, in the old days, PE funds could really add a lot of value, not just through financial engineering, but were sometimes the smartest folks in the room and could actually help on execution. Do PE funds still have the ability to do that for for portfolio companies? Or has it become so democratized that it's hard to see where portfolio companies make an impact? What's some of your sense of how PE funds add value or don't add value? Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I hear two parts of the question, and I'm going to jump into the first one around how the coronavirus has impacted our clients in the last several weeks. And to provide a little bit of color around that, um, we've seen one client currently who's heavy in the consumer goods, if you will. Um, they've had traffic and sales drop more than 15% over the last two weeks. Their supply chain of goods has been directly disrupted by the coronavirus spike in China, obviously. Um, and again, it's more industry related as our healthcare sector clients right now, specifically in the biotech and pharma space, who source a significant amount of their commodity products or raw goods, if you will, like the active pharma pharmaceutical ingredients for manufacturing purposes. They have a bountiful you know, amount of reserves on hand and they're ramping up their relationships with existing sources and channels outside of China as we currently speak. So this is definitely something that's top of mind for our current clients um, as it relates to combating the coronavirus concerns. Um, then to, sorry, go ahead, Scott. No, 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 please continue to go ahead. And just the, the call itself is not healthcare centric. So there's a lot of healthcare listeners on the phone. So thoughts, you know, keep on going. Inside and outside of healthcare is fantastic. So there's things on supply chain. I was just with China being such a challenge. People have quickly been looking at how do they review their supply chain and make sure they can still get what they need uh, timely and efficiently and, and reasonable price-wise. But, but talk more about some of the things you're seeing with challenges in light of the coronavirus and not industry-centric. 
Yeah, absolutely. So again, it really all kind of comes around the supply chain component and then the, as you know, Bird said earlier, the friction to do business, if you will. So I think a lot of organizations, especially over the last week or so, have really ramped up the precautionary steps that they've taken to protect their workforce. Um, and, you know, obviously when we're sourcing from, you know, distributors in other countries or sourcing from China, you know, there's downstream impacts of that as well. That's not as, you know, present at face value. Um, and then there's obviously a lot of disruptions that are happening to organizations that we're still sourcing items from that are dependent upon China that, again, we're just not in the loop with. So. Yeah, this is Samiksha. The only thing I would add here um, is more about the consumer sentiment as well. So certainly there is exposure to China, disruptions to supply chain, but I think there is something to be said about consumer sentiment. And I think as Sean pointed out, we are starting to see some of our consumer facing retail clients see sharp declines in their sales, which in the last couple of weeks, which certainly speaks to how the average consumer is feeling today. Uh, and I, I should caveat this saying a lot of our clients that we work with are, they tend to be private middle market companies. So they may not feel the brunt of the public markets volatility that we're all currently witnessing. But, but talk about that for a moment, because even though they're not as directly hit by the volatility, you spoke to something that's very important. Consumer sentiment moves in the wrong direction because everybody's seen their portfolio dip 15, 17%. Everybody feels a lot less wealthy. And does that lead, and everybody's more concerned about their jobs as well. Does that lead to a slowdown in spending, you know, sort of across the board? Because people are very, very concerned about what the economy is going to hold going forward. I think so. And I'm seeing that firsthand with just my own personal network and how my friends and family are responding to the current situation. And I'm seeing that with some of the retail client examples that I shared a moment ago. So I think there's something to say to be said, especially around the coast in the US, you know, you've got California all the way up to Washington and then on the East Coast, you've got New York and then Florida. I, I think with the state of emergency being implemented and, and folks being asked to work from home, I think the sentiment is certainly escalating into a fear, maybe potentially translating into a panic, at, you know, compounded by what's happening in the markets. I think we're certainly in that panic that we see in the public markets. And how do companies and how do companies deal with that, knowing that they could see their sales go down by twenty percent over the next several months, and they've got debt, they've got other issues, they've got full workforces. How do companies start to deal with that to stay healthy or as healthy as they can through this period of time, Samiksha? Yeah, that's a great question, Scott. And you know, part of what our firm does, we actually work with a lot of companies that are under distress. So that's part of our service line that's restructuring focus. So anytime we are called into our a client that's under a distress situation, which would be a lot of companies going forward with this uncertainty revolving around the coronavirus, we typically um, look at, you know, first and foremost is like cash management. We want to limit cash outflows, whether it's accounts payable or debt payments and whatnot. And you want to like figure out how do you maximize your working capital to ensure you've got enough working capital to continue to keep the business a going concern and continue to pay um, your employees to make sure you don't shut down. So I, so I think there is always like 
a, a game plan that, that needs to be put in place. Severe measures need to be um, put in place to ensure the value is preserved and, and the business can continue to operate with, with the uncertainty that's looming currently in the market. In, in, in and Sumit, let me ask you one other question. I want to go to Melissa on a question on what's happening with strategics buying into healthcare facilities. Now that sure. slowed down on a dime recently, but Sumit, let me ask you one more question. You know, there's there's a great author that talks about the term black swan that none of us were probably that familiar with before the 2008-2009 financial debacle. And this is the idea of some kind of completely unexpected event, you know, having a having a a big impact. And could you talk for a moment? You've been doing consulting at the highest level. Uh, you've also served as an advisor at a large bank, and you do what you do now. In your career, how many times have you seen something like this coronavirus that you think of as sort of a black swan that had totally unexpected consequences, totally unexpected on, on sort of the business world or on the, you know, and certainly in the hospitality, airline world, et cetera? How often have you seen this and what does recovery look like? Yeah, you know, that's a great question, Scott. And I'm, I'm going to have to think back to an unexpected event. Like, I think the last one that really jogs my memory is, is the 9-11 attacks. I think that was an unexpected black swan event that nobody saw coming. And in the aftermath of that event, you saw every single major industry affected and, and the recovery period was quite small and six months after or within like four to six months after 9-11 you had some of the largest like frauds like Enron happened, Worldcom happened, followed right after. So I think that was certainly unexpected event. Um, I don't think 08-09 was like a huge unexpected, well it had huge implications but it, it was in the making over time but it wasn't like a sudden thing that just happened. So I think what we saw in 2001-2002 is kind of what this reminds me of when I when I look at this unexpected and no one knows how to contain it and how to, or how to manage it. Thank you. And you talked about something, and I'll turn to Melissa on this concept of as a company, whether mid-sized or large, all of a sudden you get into watching working capital very closely again and make sure you've got the money to pay the bills to keep the business going, the corporations going. Melissa, you've recently seen a one of the largest national companies decide that they're going pencils down on all of their acquisitions of surgery centers and anything. And is that a reflection of this need for people just to preserve capital and make sure that they're not out more capital or the world sort of straightens itself out? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think you'll see that. I mean, with the one particular company that you're talking about, you know, my assumption is it's a highly leveraged company and, um, you know, with this uncertainty, they're much more reluctant to um, focus on growth in new areas or new companies. What they're really now focused on, it seems, is um, looking at their current assets and making sure they protect those um, and really just, I think, mitigating their risk to the extent they can with all the uncertainty related to the coronavirus and the general, um, I guess, uncertainty in, in the markets. And, and Holly, are there different segments within healthcare, and I'll give you a moment to think about this, that will be 
that will have a harder time versus an easier time through this period of time. And hopefully it's a short period of time, like a flu season where it crests in a few weeks and then starts to get much better in a hurry. But a lot of private equity is invested in dental and Bart does a ton of work in private equity buying big dental practice management companies. You do a ton of work across the board. Dental, I saw a couple of dental offices are shutting down for the time being. Any sense yeah. of how this will play through and, and what it will mean for private equity investors? I mean, I think the ones that may um, be hurt more than others are going to be the ones that are more elective. Um, so as you mentioned, dental, um, probably dermatology and some others where there, there may be some truly kind of medically pressing issues that need to be dealt with, but where there's a higher component of elective um, procedures and services, I think those are the ones that are going to be uh, maybe slowed more. So uh, just a few weeks ago, my dad had um, a hip replacement and we were discussing at the time and we probably just got in under the wire because there's a good chance that had it been today, they may have postponed the surgery um, to avoid him being potentially exposed in a hospital or hospitals not wanting to kind of fill their beds with people who don't need to be there in light of this. And I've no idea how that's playing out, but it seems to me that for the services that can wait, um, they may be the ones that see greater slowdowns. In, in, in part, I think Holly's probably 100% right on that. If you've got elective surgery, you don't at this moment want to open yourself up with those viruses going around if you can if you could hold off. Bart, any thoughts on sectors that will slow down a little bit versus those that won't? Any sense of that in the healthcare area? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think anything that has an elective element to it or something that can be delayed will get delayed. What um, will be curious for, uh, what I'm curious about to see is how quickly things pop back. Uh, so is this a three to six month event? Is this just a three month event? Is this a 12 month event? Uh, I think a lot will, will determine uh, how the healthcare sector fares depending on the, the length and severity of this. I think it's pretty clear from the projections that uh, if you look at, uh, just looking at the kind of the latest data coming out of Japan, it seems like they've managed to avoid a lot of the escalation and overwhelm of their healthcare system. Italy, not so much. Uh, China, not so much. I think a lot will have to do with the national response to it, too. In, in terms of just uh, one more question on the PE side, Bart, you work with a number of PE funds. You've seen multiples the last couple of years on deals that are 5, 10, 15 million in EBITDA, being at the 10, 12, 13 range in multiples. Just to, to discuss that further, is that all on hold for the moment, or do you see deals that will continue to go, and do they have to be in, in industries, and are there any that aren't going to be affected by this coronavirus thing? I think it will tend to go. I, th I think things are still going forward. It's still a little bit early to see, obviously, um, but I, I do think you know, the entire industry will benefit when you compare healthcare to other sectors generally tends to be more recession resistant. Um, so I think that's going for it. I think short term, there's going to be some turbulence because of the coronavirus and just how the industry itself reacts to that and putting off potentially elective procedures and things of that nature. But I think if you take a little bit longer view, healthcare is one of the better places to be a little bit, you know, more moderate, medium, medium term, long term than some of the other sectors that could be hurt a lot worse. Like 
I got to think about the cruise industry and, and some other travel industries that may take it a lot harder. Well, right, fascinating. And some of those industries are going to be way over leveraged compared to their cash flow for the next 12 to 18 months or as soon as they recover. I mean, at least at the present moment, and memories change quickly, none of us want to be on a cruise ship. Right, 100%. And I, I think you're exactly right, uh, which goes back to my earlier point. It depends on kind of the, the duration of this whole episode as far as healthcare goes. If it's a long, extended episode, then I think it turns into a battle of attrition where you've got a decent number of healthcare companies that are highly levered, others not as highly levered. I think uh, that'll be the, the deciding factor for a lot of these. Well, and that's, uh, I mean, that's fascinating. And then, then I guess the question, and Samiksha, I'll ask you this, with the, um, and I know you do a lot of consulting and turnaround work versus necessarily investment banking or advising on the buy side right now. But with some of these situations where they're, you know, somebody said to me yesterday, well, American Airlines price is down 50%. And one person would say, well, that's a buying opportunity. Another person would say, well, they've got so much leverage on that company that there is no buying opportunity. And not necessarily talking about American Airlines to make sure but what's your sense of this? Will this create some opportunities for private equity funds, some of which are sitting on, you know, reportedly a trillion five in dollars to invest? What's some of your sense of what's going to happen here? And will there be opportunities for buyers? Yeah, I mean, as you rightly said, Scott, like we, I'm no longer in investment banking, so I'm certainly not advising people on on an M&A from a deal activity standpoint. But I can share my perspective here. So I think, look, there has been a ton of capital in the markets for the last few years. I don't believe that the risk of this virus today is going to stop that activity. There might be a temporary halt, but there is ample liquidity in the market in my mind, and the valuations continue to be an elevated level. Now, I understand that the public equities might be trading at a lower multiple, just given what's happening in the public markets. But as far as private deals are concerned with private um, equity flowing in, capital flowing in, I don't think that's yet impacted. Um, and I think it all comes down to if and how and when this virus is actually able to con be contained. And that might certainly determine when and how the deal valuation starts getting impacted. But given what I see right now, I don't believe that it's gonna create a liquidity crunch just yet for private investors. Fascinating. And, and <laughs> Melissa or Holly, any thoughts on that? It, it The liquidity crunch, I, I, I guess the question I would have to make sure, and I'm not sure the right person to answer this is, you've got these huge debt funds that have emerged over the last decade that weren't even really an asset class before that. Now the largest private equity funds in the world uh, the Blackstones of the world, uh, Apollo, all of these $100 billion debt funds that they're using to invest, um, as well as smaller ones that are you know, $12 billion debt funds that were just never around before. Are these debt funds, you were already starting to see some cracks in those because all of a sudden you, you've had, at least in the healthcare space, a large dermatology platform um, you have to miss payments and, and, and go south. Are there going to be bigger cracks in these big debt platforms? 
and are they prepared to deal with that? Yeah, so maybe are you seeing yeah. some of are you some of your thoughts there? Yeah, absolutely. That, that again, great question, Scott. So I think what I would say, right? I, I think you actually asked a great question around credit funds because the leverage when I was in the leverage finance business five years ago, the max leverage we were permitted to underwrite was like five to six times max. And now I'm seeing or hearing about deals that are done at 8x or even 9x leverage, which is certainly, you know, reflective of elevated valuation levels overall. So yes, we are certainly seeing, um, you know, one of the things as part of a restructuring practice, we certainly get calls from credit funds all the time when a certain um, borrower is not able to make payments and there is a crack in the business, but that's typically because they're having operational challenges. I haven't yet seen any direct leads that a business is starting to um, underperform due to the virus, but like I said, that might slowly trickle down to that middle market space that we focus on. So it might be a matter of time before we start getting those kinds of calls, but we haven't yet seen those happen, but it might be coming down the pike soon. Now to answer the second part of your question around, are they prepared? Um, TBD is, is how I would best put it, um, frankly. And I think in the last couple of years, every fund was hungry for yield. They had so much capital, all they wanted was yield. So a lot of capital was certainly deployed. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how the underwriting standards and the investment memos supported the investment pieces and, and how it actually plays out in, in a stressed um, credit and equity environment. So I, I think it'll be interesting to see how, how that unfolds and if they're truly prepared um, to, tackle, to tackle that. And Holly, any thoughts on will the stress credit environment lead to some deals or, or what, what are your sense of that? Will that lead to some opportunities for people to pick things up cheaper or, or, or some buying opportunities? Um, I don't know if it'll lead to increased buying opportunities as much as I think that maybe there's going to be more scrutiny by some lenders on some deals that would have got done six months or a year ago that may not get done now and they're the ones that potentially have more uh, more hair on them. Um, I think um, it, it's been very competitive out there from a lending perspective and, and, and trying to get uh, deals to fund. And I think maybe as things do get more strained, I think the, the kind of bar, uh, barometer is going to change a little bit in terms of which deals should and shouldn't get done. And, and, and often, Melissa, you could probably talk to this. In a lot of these deals, the decision is not necessarily to resell to this company or to that company. It's whether as a surgery center that might make two to seven million dollars a year, whatever the number is, it should we do a deal at all? And yeah. So, that, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. Go. You go ahead. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, a lot of the decision on whether to do a deal is it's not always about the money. It's about, is there some sort of strategic partnership or other reason to partner with or sell the company? Um, you might have, you know, just aging um, physician group, or there might be a situation where, you know, that market, you need the help of a certain payer or um, hospital group. So you're right. It's not always about the money. It's, um, you know, there are 
politics and other strategic considerations um, that a group might just be weighing in terms of whether to do a deal. Thank you. And in part, you see some of the same thing, typically talk about all the time in the dental practice management space. A large practice isn't thinking about necessarily one versus the other. It's thinking about, should we not do a deal? If there's pricing slowdowns and credit slowdowns, will that lead more practices to just stay the course versus do a deal? Even in this time when there's been crazy consolidation in the dental field. Mark, any thoughts there? Yeah, I think that's right. And, and one of the unique things uh, about dental as, as compared to some of the other sectors that we've seen is there seems to be a disconnect in the expectations for valuation of some of the smaller practices versus the big uh, platform transactions that I talked about earlier. With the platform deals, you see multiples getting pretty frothy up to 12, 13 times EBITDA. Then the smaller practices see those numbers and they get dollar signs in their eyes and then they now have the expectation that their practice will sell for the same amount. And it's just not reality. And I think to the extent debt becomes less available or more expensive, or there's other pressures on the system uh, from a macroeconomic perspective, I think that just further exposes those fault lines that are already there and widens that gap in terms of valuation perspective. So I, I wouldn't be surprised to see a slowdown happen in the dental transaction sector. The other way to look at it is on a long enough time horizon, like Holly said earlier, do people try to put off some of those services and overall does that sector slow down such that it forces some of those practices to consolidate? Thank you. And, and Sean, you work across sectors and have, and have grown a great professional reputation. What's some of the most interesting things you're seeing right now in different sectors outside of healthcare and just sort of this, um, you know, what's going on? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I think I would push it more towards back to the consumer industry right now as it relates to the current environment. So if you think about the life cycle of a client, you know, you've seen decline in profitability over the years. So they're not necessarily in a liquidity event. I think you're starting to see the scrutiny of the funds themselves and the investors become, you know, more focused on I want performance management and visibility in an organization so I can make that next decision investment point in the life cycle of a company. Um, and that's, that's a specific example as the client we're currently working with now is investors just want to get visibility into how the organization is performing, especially with all the economic events that are happening around us today. Um, and, you know, and back to the life cycle comments, Scott, as you think about some of these companies that have seen decline profitability over the years as innovation and disruption has plagued the market, if you will, I think those companies that are hanging on by a hair who aren't necessarily in a full-blown liquidity event are really leaning on, you know, organizations such as PE firms to help bail them out and help them pre-correct the ship, if you will. Um, especially some of those organizations that seem like a rudderless ship, if you will, trying to understand like the path to profitability, if you will. And you know, industry-wise, like I can't necessarily give one industry over another, but you know, the consumer industry seems most impacted by the volatility right now. You no, know, it's a it's the consumer industry for sure, and fascinating comments. One of the most fascinating things, and I'll, I'll start to, we'll start to finish up here, is this concept in every sales process, particularly the, the 11th year into a bull market, into an up market, an up economy, the, the key question that's asked by the next investor and by the investment bankers and all the advisors is, how will the company perform 
in a recession? How's it going to perform in a downturn? And nobody really truly answers those questions as fully as they, they try to, but nobody really knows. And one of the most fascinating things about this coronavirus is you, you get a real world example of how companies will actually perform uh, in a way that nobody really wanted exposed. Because if you ask, well, how would the airlines perform in a crisis? The CEO of the airline would say, well, it'll be tough, but it will be okay. But the reality is you're saying, well, not that well. And, and, and it'll be a lot more transparency on companies as they go to market and try and bring in a PE fund or strategic investor as to how their performance will be in a downturn. Um, but, but, and, and it's sort of a fascinating transparency that everybody sort of asks for, but nobody really sees that people are going to see a lot more firsthand right now. Let, let me wrap up now. Um, Samiksa, let me ask you if you could tell the audience a little bit more about your firm and how to find Miru. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so as I mentioned in the introduction, just as a quick recap, we are a turnaround and restructuring firm started uh, three years ago. So a lot of folks may not be familiar with us directly. Um, you know, the focus for us is we work across sectors with a lot of middle market companies ranging from $100 million in revenue to over a billion dollar public companies as well. Most of our, you know, we're focused on two service lines. One is focused on restructuring, which is working with a company which is under distress, either due to operational challenges or um, through some of the economic challenges that we're currently witnessing. And on the value creation side, which is our second service line, we work across uh, portfolio companies for different private equity com uh, firms and to identify opportunities for value creation and, uh, and unlock value. So that's, that's us. And one of the things that kind of differentiates us from your typical um, consulting firms that you may see is that we're, we're not only focused on identifying value for our clients, we are also very invested in helping them implement and capture that value. So we start sometimes even embed ourselves as part of the management teams to, to drive value capture. And, and we have colleagues across the country working on transformation programs, taking on chief transformation officer roles, CFO roles to, to help drive our clients to achieve their maximum potential. And the best way to find us, like I'm available on, on LinkedIn. We, we have a website as well, vrmiru.com. So folks are welcome to um, check us out and feel free to reach out to me on, on, on LinkedIn. Happy to connect and help out in any way we can. Well, Samiksha and uh, Sean, we appreciate you joining us very much. Um, let me just, on the McGuire website, Melissa heads up the ambulatory transactions time team. Bard has set up the Charlotte office for a long time, also heads up the dental practice management team and several other teams. How will you head up in whole the, the, today, the healthcare and life sciences team with David Pivnik? Um, and in I, I, two seconds on the McGuire Woods overall healthcare and life sciences team. Great, thank you. So McGuire Woods has one of the uh, largest healthcare practices in the country. Um, we focus on um, uh, for-profit, non-profit, um, ambulatory and facility-based uh, providers, as well as the life sciences space. We have um, over 60 attorneys nationally focused solely on healthcare and about 150 
um, kind of in our across department team focusing um, on various areas such as debt finance and private equity, but spending the majority of their time in healthcare. Uh, we have a, a great department, a really deep bench, and uh, um, lots of fun transactions to work on. So you can reach um, um, any of us through the Maguire Woods website um, or directly uh, through email. Well, thank you. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. Samiksha, Sean, Melissa, Howie, Bart, just a pleasure to hear the thoughts. I know such a fluid situation, so we varied from what was originally the talk intended, but just so much going on and so interesting to see. We hope that it all turns out okay uh, and recovers quickly and, and, and moves forward over the next uh, hopefully three to four weeks and then back to uh, a recovery. So thank you all very much for joining us today. We'll distribute this broadly.